Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor, host for this podcast, in which we delve into the most important, controversial, and interesting events in the history of the Catholic Church. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, glad you could be here again. Um, this is uh, uh, our latest episode in our series on Catholic liberalism, the 19th century uh, movement in the Catholic Church. And uh, this is episode seven, uh, Eclipse, 1870 to 1905. And uh, before we get into it, just to remind you guys, uh, I'm on the web, uh on Facebook, uh, and YouTube, please like the p- Facebook page, subscribe to the podcast, check out the uh, the, uh, the website, the blog. I have articles being published in places. I'll post them on there. Links to there are there. And please also sign up on YouTube. I have you know decent number of uh, subscribers to YouTube. Uh, and again, if you want to get in touch with me, you can send me a message on Facebook. I believe the the I, somebody tried to email me through the website a few weeks back and said it didn't work. It should work now, so you can do that, uh, or send a message or leave a comment on YouTube as well. So do like hearing from you. I will respond. Uh, so yeah, uh, thank you guys for all my listeners. I really appreciate you. <clears throat> now, let's get into this. So last episode we ended with. The Vatican, First Vatican Council, the condemnation of certain aspects of theological liberalism, the, again, all the, you know, nationalist movements in Germany and in Italy that seem to crush the church or try to do that, or, or at least that are opposed to its influence. And it seems like, and you could, I guess you could say, Catholic liberalism is kind of done as a movement by the end of Vatican I. And it, I guess, to a certain degree, I, I'm I'm saying no. I'm saying it only gets eclipsed really by the end of the century, and uh, you'll see why in a minute. But just a couple. Of, I want to start out with a couple of things here, and again, let's remind ourselves what Catholic liberalism as a religious movement is meant to do. It's meant to, again, get the church to engage in the modern world and even adapt to it, so that it can re-Catholicize societies that have seemed to abandon it, like France and other places. And um, that's kind of on the ropes by now, because of course. You know, all these governments seem to be kind of coming out against it. And in fact, Vatican I exacerbates this problem in a big way. Uh, countries across, in countries across Europe, um, there's a lot of indignation at the whole um, definition of papal infallibility. It seems to be make Catholics, you know, traitors to their own country because now they have to obey everything the Pope says. That's not what Vatican I says. That's what they think it says. A lot of people, and it makes them people who are already suspicious of Catholicism. It really gins up a lot of hatred against it, and this comes to a fore in uh, what's called the Kulturkampf in Germany. And uh, I'm going to breeze through this quickly, but effectively, what happens is the government there gets spooked by the Vatican Council under their Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. They begin passing a series of laws um, that. Did things like put seminaries under state supervision, subjected schools to state uh, state inspection. Uh, they began expelling religious orders, starting with the Jesuits. Um, they confiscated church property. Uh, there was a there was a real effort on the both part of secular liberals, but also Protestants were riled up by this to kind of basically. It was an attempt, you know, Kulturkampf, by the way, means culture war. It was an attempt to kind of crush the church. And the Germans, they stood up to it. Um, German bishops refused to go along with all these things, a lot of them. Uh, some were arrested, others were exiled from the country. Uh, and in fact, long story short, it didn't actually work. 
1870, the Catholics had founded their own political party, the Catholic Center Party in Prussia, and um, they actually gained seats in elections in the end of the 1870s. And so by 1878, this begins to die down. Leo XIII becomes the Pope in 1878, who's a little less combative than Pius IX. They eventually restore relationships, but it takes several decades. And in fact, the big takeaway from this is that the Catholic Church in Germany goes into a shell. They basically withdraw from anything that's not Catholic because they're so spooked by how violent the reaction is. I mean, in emotional terms, not actual physical, but there is some, but not much. Um, how, they're so spooked by this. And in fact, this is where the term, if you've ever heard the term Catholic ghetto, you know, Catholics hiding in their ghetto and not going into the outside world, it comes from Germany. Um, and it has a purpose. <laughs> that ghetto is not is kind of necessary um, after the Kulturkampf. Um, but that's one fallout from this. The other main fallout I'll talk about is in France. And if you don't know, I mentioned last time briefly uh, that French lost the Franco-Prussian War. The empire was overturned. There was actually a revolution again in 1870 uh, when Paris was taken over by a bunch of socialists and workers and communists uh, who took over the city for better part of like a year. Uh, eventually were crushed by uh, French troops. But they were virulently anti-clerical. Were these? It was called the Commune, is what it was called. They tried to set up a government, more or less a communist government. They executed the Archbishop of Paris, um, killed a bunch of their priests. Uh, in other words, there's an anti-clerical reaction going on immediately after 1870, 1871, not directly related necessarily to Vatican I. And what happens is you begin to have, and I mentioned this in the last episode, the, that secularization of education beginning to take place uh, in 1879, the first of the so-called Ferry Laws, named after Jules Ferry, the statesman who got them passed. The first law in 1879 in France made primary education mandatory, right? State primary education mandatory. And then 1882 basically got rid of um, um, any sort of religious involvement in public schooling. So you have the, the beginnings of the takeover education, public education by uh, the state. Uh, and so that's that's beginning to sort of go in that direction. And again, I mentioned this last time, similar process takes place in even in Protestant countries with regards to the Protestant churches because education had been run by the churches, Catholic and Protestant, all European countries and the United States. In all those places, the United States included, begins to be taken out of the hands of religious organizations. <clears throat> so what is where does this leave Catholic liberalism? Well, uh, again, as an independent movement of its own life, maybe not so much in existence, but what happens is, though, is that the church itself kind of, in certain ways, tries to... They basically take up uh, the Catholic liberal mantle to a certain degree. And I'm thinking about here is the uh, so-called ralliement of Leo XIII, and I need to talk about Leo XIII for a second. He gets elected Pope in 1878. He's a much different person from Pius IX. Pius IX was a very witty, charming guy. He was not a scholar or an intellectual. Leo XIII was. Leo XIII was a Thomistic theologian. Uh, remember I talked about last time that the neo-Thomistic, neo-scholastic revival begins in the 1850s. He's one of the first, he's a professor, and I can't remember which university, in, in Italy, but he's a professor. Uh, becomes a cardinal, becomes the pope, and he sort of gives the impetus to this revival. 
1879, he issues Eterni Patris, an encyclical, in which he calls for uh, the revival of the work of Thomas Aquinas, not not on you know scholasticism after Aquinas, which was mostly what people did up until this period, uh, but for everyone to go back to the teaching of Thomas. Uh, for two reasons. One, uh, to you to revive his work and use it as a sort of basis to respond to the problems of the modern world. The other uh, thing he wants to use it for is a basis for uh, priestly education, priestly formation in seminaries. And he does this. He issues dozens of encyclicals. You know, Raver Navarro in 1891 is an encyclical on the social question, right? On, you know, labor versus, you know, capital, all that stuff. Um, which he condemns socialism and, and runaway capitalism. Uh, he publishes, uh, also wants to use Thomas as an answer to intellectual concerns of the modern world. He issues Providentissimus Deus, uh, 1893, which is on biblical scholarship, which despite, you know, modern academics don't, I think it's a very interesting, very a very thoughtful uh, encyclical on that sort of thing. So he's wanting to revive Thomas as an answer to modern critics. But he also, and this is something that happens, I should mention this, after so eighteen, after he becomes elected pope, 1879, there begins to be a little rapprochement between the French government, particularly in the Holy See. The French government, under Jules Ferry, among other people, basically want the church's help in their overseas empires. They're trying to, um, you know, they, they're trying to, if you like, use Catholic missionaries to sort of, you know, Francofy, if that's a word, make French the peoples, the colonial peoples, they're they're now governing, and so um, there's kind of a there's kind of a warming with, uh, of relations there. And so by late 1880s, Leo thinks the time is ripe to uh, to um, um, to try to engage uh, public life in France again, and so he issues an encyclical in 1892 and a letter to bishops in 1891, where he calls for French Catholics to you know rally to the Third Republic, as it had been formed after the Commune, um, to basically embrace it. Uh, in a letter to the bishops of France, uh, 1891, he uh, calls on them to, and I'm quoting here, accept the Republic, submit to it as rep representing power come from God, unquote. And his idea was, he wanted what he wanted Catholics to do, is form a conservative party in the French you know, legislature, of an alliance between Catholics of all stripes and moderate Republicans to try to use the, the, the liberties granted by the Third Republic's constitution to, again, to engage and re-Catholicize the country. Essentially, this is basically the Abbe de Lamennais' idea. Leo XIII, no, nobody, as far as I can tell, says this, but this is Catholic liberalism in a nutshell. As you can imagine, this doesn't go over too well with some a lot of Catholics in France. Why? Because they've been fighting against this for for a hundred years at this point. Um, because of course, again, you've had literal physical attacks on the church in France. Because you know, for a long time, the ultramontane press in Italy and France and elsewhere has basically sold the modern world as totally untouchable. So there's a large number of Catholics who refuse to go along with this. Um, they think they can't have any truck with it. They think only a monarchy. They're stay monarchists. And they're still hoping for its restoration at that point. Uh, and so it divides Catholics there. And in fact, there are some politicians, there are some Catholics who try to 
put together a sort of ralliement party, but it's kind of a miserable failure. <laughs> they never get more than 79 seats in the legislature in France. And by the 1890, end of the 1890s, 1899, it's a dead letter. Partly because of the very unfortunate Dreyfus affair. If you know what this is, this is probably actually going to do it. I should do an episode on this. It's very controversial. Uh, Alfred Dreyfus was a um, um, a French military officer who got accused of treason on really, really dubious evidence. And the Catholic press took this and ran with it, um, basically on the basis of anti-Semitism. Uh, and so came out against him. Eventually, um, I believe the secular press, um, Emile Zola, if member serves, gets him exonerated. But Catholics, by and large, see him as a traitor. Again, a lot of this has to do with anti-Semitism. And it's this outburst that kind of convinces the the secular, more extreme Republicans, the anti-clericals, that they need once and for all to sever any ties of the Republic with the Church. So that in 1903, they begin uh, <clears throat> debating a law of separation. They have, uh, even before they pass it in 1903 and four, they shut down all schools run by religious orders, 12,000 of them. Uh, and they ban religious orders from teaching whatsoever in France. And then in 1905, they pass the so-called law of separation, which basically puts an end to the concordat that the church had made with, with Napoleon way back in 1801. And uh, state in its law of separation states that the Republic does not recognize uh, or subsidize, gives no financial backing to, quote, any religious sect, unquote. The church is officially laicized. It nationalizes church buildings. It makes some arrangements with local, you know, allows local governments to make some arrangements with the church. But effectively, this is the end of any relationship between church and state in France. Uh, to this day, forms the basis of, 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 um, of French law in that regard. I will say that it, the, the law is softened in the decades after World War I, partly because there's a little bit of, and actually this holds to this day, a kind of detente between the, the laicized French Republic and the church, mainly because of the sacrifices made by French priests during World War I. A lot of them went into the war, fought in the war, acted as, as, as uh, chaplains, and died. And so that sort of blood sacrifice to the nation state uh, convinced the, the secular Republicans that they, they soften up the laws a little bit for, uh, for the church. But basically, that's the end. And effectively, it's the end of the dream of Lamanet. It's the end of any sort of Catholic liberalism, effectively. So it gets overtaken by events in that regard. However, there's one other sort of blow-up in terms of <clears throat> one last condemnation of a form of liberalism in the 19th century— which occurs at the same time, more or less, <clears throat> as all this is going on. And this is the so-called Americanist controversy. Now, I'm not going to go into this too much detail. I'm probably going to do an episode on this at some point. But uh, the same sorts of, of issues that are roiling people in France uh, and across Europe in the 19th century are roiling the church in the United States. There's a group of bishops, clergy, some lay Catholics who want to engage the modern world. They want to engage in public life in the United States. They want, they see the American Constitution as being a, a good vehicle for the church uh, to spread its message. And um, on the other side, you have people who think this is a terrible idea. Uh, and by the way, that other side is definitely, they call themselves liberals. They embrace that idea. They're Catholic liberals of a sort. 
On the other side, they don't. I guess they take. The, I don't know if they take the name, but they're kind of quote unquote conservatives. I hate using these terms; they're confusing. But they oppose this. This is their big thing. They they don't think that Catholics should engage in public life. The Catholic Church is kind of poor, uh, even to the, at the end of the 19th century in America. It doesn't have a good uh, intellectual life at the end of the 19th century in America. And they see American public life as tainted by Protestant, but also liberal errors of the kind condemned by the syllabus of errors. So you had this division opening up, and it comes to a flashpoint in the late 1880s over education, not surprisingly, because, of course, you have public education systems, no national ones in the United States, obviously, but there are public education systems. But there's a big divide because, of course, the church has begun to build up its parish schools, its Catholic schools, why? Because people like John Hughes of New York didn't trust the public school system there, which was officially secular, but run by evangelical Protestants. So they wanted to build their own. This is early 1840s, and 1850s. But, um, but as the century begins to draw to a close, there are some people like Cardinal Gibbons of Baltimore, and in particular, John Ireland, the Bishop of Minneapolis, who began to advocate that Catholics should embrace public schooling. They should not be separate from public life. They're the ones who have this optimistic appraisal of where the Republic can go, um, in contrast to their, their opponents. And this becomes, why does this become a, a big flare-up in the Church? It becomes a big flare-up in the Church because there is a connection between these liberals in the United States and the ones in France. John Ireland... Well, obviously Irish, uh, as, as a lot of the uh, Episcopate is in the United States in the 19th century, is uh, he's trained, he went to seminary in France, where he was educated by disciples of the Abbe de la Manet. He is a liberal in the literal sense of the term. Uh, Catholic liberal in, that, in the very strict historical sense of that term. And so he goes over to, uh, to, uh, to, to France, to Paris in 1892, gives a speech where he lauds the progress of the American church and that one of the reasons why it's having such a good time and progressing so much is because it's embracing, you know, not, not, not embracing modern theology, or pro but embracing, it's engaging with the modern world and it's, a, you know, a future-oriented church, all this stuff, right? Uh, that sort of, you know, rhetoric. And his admirers will take his speeches and publish a book of them in 1894. So he's got that connection there. But Ireland, again, like a lot of these Catholic liberals, they push the envelope. They want to engage. Um, he, uh, Ireland and Gibbons appear at the uh, Columbian Congress of Chicago in 1883, sort of like a World's Fair. Uh, and there are a bunch of different like congresses of different groups with different you know causes there. And Gibbons, along with Ireland, um, they attend the... Con the uh, World Congress of Religions, which is this kind of interfaith meeting. Not just Protestants, there's Jewish rabbis there, but there are actually a bunch of, there are three, and I can't remember their names, but there are uh, people from there, I, I believe they're Hindu and Buddhist representatives from India. Causes a big sensation in uh, at the time. Uh, Cardinal Gibbons actually opens the whole thing with a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And... Um, this displeases the papal nuncio a lot, uh, who is actually who refuses to go. Like he goes initially to the to the the Columbian Exposition with them, he won't go anywhere near that. And two years later, Rome actually issues an injunction prohibiting any sort of meetings like Catholics to go to any meetings like this. For obvious, for if it's not clear, they're afraid this gives the impression that the Church thinks that all these religions are somehow on the same plane or equal. 
Uh, and so this is the kind of thing that gets people nervous about Catholic liberalism in the United States. Where does the whole Americanism thing come from then? Well, it comes from France. It comes from France because in the early 1890s, um, uh, a biography of Father Isaac Hecker, Isaac Hecker is the founder of the Paulist Order in the United States, dies in the 1870s. He's the founder of a newspaper, um, a Catholic newspaper, convert from Protestantism, was a, a, a friend, was a, a, someone who John Henry Newman admired. It was kind of a, kind of Newman-like. He was not, the guy was perfectly orthodox for the most part, but he gets played up by these Catholic liberals in the United States as the future of the priesthood because he's open to the world. And again, nothing specifically, you know, whatever, heretical or anything like that, but it's very much this, you know, this attitude that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And when that biography gets published in 1897 in French, uh, at the same time, there's a speech given by um, by one of these American Catholic liberals, a guy named Dennis O'Connell, who's the at one time the rector of the North American College in Rome, gives a speech at a, a congress of of, um, of Catholic scholars promoting this biography. It leads to a bad reaction in Paris among people who are you know they're opposed to well they're opposed to Raudiamont and they're opposed to any sort of compromise with modernity. Um, a bunch of uh, in the fall of 1897, a bunch of Jesuit priests give sermons attacking the speech given by O'Connell and particularly attacking Isaac Hecker, as they understand him, and attacking what they call Americanism, which, again, is this vaguely defined charge of being, you know, compromising with the modern world. And um, it leads to a, a big reaction in the press there. A series of articles are published in a variety of places attacking this. And so this flares up in the French Catholic press. It gets picked up by the French secular press and makes its way in the Catholic world into uh, Belgium, Germany, and Italy by the end of the 1890s, so that's a big to-do. And so the Pope has to do something about this. He uh, puts the commission together, which effectively writes a condemnation of Americanism, again, which didn't really exist before the French got a hold of this. They took some tendencies which were a little bit there there's some there's some problems there with tendencies and turned it into an actual uh, set of doctrines um if you're wondering which doctrines they condemn it's not that uh, well let me go into this they condemn several things leo the 13th rewrites it before he publishes this letter which is addressed to cardinal gibbons um he takes in all the names i don't know which names are there but it doesn't condemn any by name and it makes a distinction between americanism as describing again wanting to you know participate in public life and try to re and try to catholicize public life and the things that people were accusing the americanists of being of you know give an example of some of the things get condemned in the document which is called testem benevolentiae uh, 1899 it condemns uh the idea that the active virtues are superior to the passive ones that's to say you know active you know action in the world is more important than contemplation prayer it particularly singles out, I guess, some people um, in the United States thought that the religious orders weren't that important. So it says, you know, you can't say that sort of thing, those sorts of things. Um, um, another thing it condemns is the idea that, again, the American form of government, while, you know, it can be... And, and, and by the way, Leo XIII had issued, you know, letters it was praising the American church already. So he's not... Um, he doesn't hate America. Um but putting uh, putting the um, 
American system of government, system of church-state relations forward as the church's ideal, that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's something we can work with, but it's not something that should be ideal. In other words, he distinguishes between a good and a bad form of Americanism. And, um, and so when it's issued, Ireland and Gibbons try to head this off. They actually, they, uh, Ireland goes to Rome. Gibbons writes a letter to, to Leo XIII. Uh, neither one of them get there in time. Um, and they submit to the, they, they, they acknowledge its authority. They both deny that anybody actually holds those doctrines, themselves included. Uh, nonetheless, the biography of Hecker, I believe the French one is withdrawn, and the whole issue comes to an end. Uh, and so you have, and it's an interesting thing, because of course, going back to La Monet, the United States had been held up as an exemplar of what he wanted to see in France. And it gets it only gets condemned when it comes back to France because nobody much cared about America up until then for a lot of different reasons. Not that it wasn't the center of their lives um, in Rome. So the last condemnation of liberalism is testem benevolentiae in a way. And so last thing we come to here is okay. So how, does any of this you know is this that's I guess you could say the last movement to a certain degree, the last flame, not quite uh, of 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 uh, liberalism. And I guess the question you're waiting for here is, if you know about the history, is that this is right on the eve. I end this episode 1905, the date. That's more or less the time that the modernist crisis is emerging. So what's what re, what relationship, if any, is there between? The, the dying embers of Catholic liberalism as a religious movement and modernism. So let's go through this. I'll just say at the beginning, it's not direct. There's a few indirect um, connections here. And one, I've talked about this in the, my episode on modernism. You should go listen to it. But one of the things that's happening at the end of the 19th century is because now um, theologians in the church are beginning to have to engage with secular and Protestant scholarship, because you have in France, for example, the founding of new Catholic universities, institutes. There's an Institut Catholique uh, in Paris founded, which is still very prominent. Um, Catholic University of America is founded in 1889. So you have scholars now being exposed to and being influenced by Protestant and secular scholarship, you know, biblical scholarship, historical criticism. And... Um, Again, there's going to be some crossover in terms of the ideas of these Catholic liberals and these modernists. One of the big differences is modernism is, for the most part, an intellectual movement. It's not; It never is a popular movement. It's not a movement for... There's not a social aspect to modernism, per se, um, uh, as there, it comes almost totally out of the Catholic Academy, is my point. As for the movements that might feed into it, it might be called liberal. One, and this is not worth mentioning too much because it's not really much of a movement in and of itself. Um, I mentioned how the Kulturkampf led the German church to sort of turn in on itself. In the uh, last years of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, there's a movement to reverse this um, in the Catholic church. And it's sometimes lumped together. It's actually a bunch of disparate movements lumped together under the name Reform Catholicism. I think Reform Catholicismus in German is what it's called, but essentially uh, several different liberal currents of ideas, actions, whose basic goal is to get out of this ghetto they built for themselves. Like, okay, we needed to protect ourselves for a while. Now we feel like Catholic life, Catholic life is too restricted, too stagnant. We want to 
we want to get in touch with the modern world so we can see what's you know so we can engage with the best that's best of what the world has to offer all that sort of stuff um, that's one big current. Another big current is uh, the other major current of this is you have a lot of Germans, clergy, laymen who are deeply opposed to Roman centralization. There's an anti-Roman bent to a lot of this, um, as there has been for a long time and is today, as you can probably guess from 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 events in the news. And so you have a bunch of different. I'm gonna go through all of these disparate. Um, you know, goals, things like you have sympathizers with the old Catholics. The old Catholics were a, a schismatic church um, already in existence. Gets a boost from Vatican I because all people who can't accept the infallibility doctrine go become old Catholics. We just had one, by the way. If you've seen the news, there's a Catholic priest in Germany who left the Catholic church to go to the old Catholics. Why? Because the old Catholics today allow things like uh, married clergy and uh, women priests, and they bless gay unions and all this stuff. Uh, they didn't do anything that, that like that back then, but you had people who sympathized with the old Catholic Church back then, mostly on the issue of infallibility, who stayed in the church. You had, you know, laymen who just wanted greater independence from the clergy. Again, a, a plethora of things. Uh, and most of this was based in Catholic uh, theology faculties. There's one major journal called uh, Hawkland. Um, put together by and I'm, I mentioned this in the, the the episode on modernism, which is founded in, uh, in uh, 1903, becomes a prestigious literary journal. Which again, it's trying to get out of you know, uh, get out of the 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 rut of only reading Catholic works and Catholic didactic works and engaging with world literature and all this other stuff. Um, that kind of sort of feeds into it, although not really, uh, because modernism is not as because it's so closed off, the German church, it's not really as affected there by modernism that other countries are. One other aspect of, of late Catholic liberalism in the 19th century that does feed into the modernist crisis to a certain degree is what's sometimes called the apologetics of imminence. What is the apologetics of imminence? I'll explain this in a second. I need a drink of water. So you have several philosophers, no more than a handful, in this era where neo-scholasticism, neo-Thomanism comes to dominate the church's life, who still want to carry on the goal of Lamane of replacing scholasticism with a philosophy which is more modern, but also more grounded in Christian faith than, you know, look, Thomism is based on partly on Aristotelianism. So to replace scholasticism with a Christian philosophy, which would appeal to modern people. And a lot of these thinkers, um, actually there's, there's three, and I'll mention all of them here in a second. They, um, one of their big concerns is to counter the philosophy that's all the rage in late 19th century Europe, which is positivism. Positivism is the philo philosophy that says basically that the only real knowledge you can have is a knowledge that can be verified by scientific reasoning or by some sort of, you know, scientifically verified data or experience. And so they want to oppose this, and they usually take a, a sort of experiential or subjectivist turn to try to do this, meaning they want to put the emphasis on human ex on experience rather than, say, rational thought. Uh, and they do this, the first one of these people I mentioned here is uh, Hermann Schell, who's a professor of apologetics at Würzburg. And... Um, his idea is that God is basically, uh, he's effectively in some ways a voluntarist, uh, put it in those terms. Um, 
you know, Thomas philosophers will talk about God as being ratio. He's the ratio. He's, you know, God as logos, as reason. If you want to, I'm, I'm dumbing things down horribly here for the sake of convenience, but um, he calls, uh, he calls, um, uh, Sherman Scholl does, uh, talks about God as being the, um, uh, uh, God is, I think it's the act, act, uh, uh, causa sui. He's the, he's the cause itself. Yeah, it's the word causa sui. Um, you know, his self-revealing act in in the world is what, you know, how we, how we, this is kind of confusing. This is where the term imminence comes from. Um, what he wants to say is that God can be known to us not just through, through reasoning or through abstract speculative thought, but as much or as more from God's imminent revelation of himself in the world. That is to say, in our daily lives, in, you know, uh, in the imminent part of the world, right? He wants to reconcile, do all these philosophers do, imminence with transcendence. Um, they're suspicious of a God who's too transcendent, who can't be revealed in daily life. Why? Because they're surrounded by a bunch of atheists and, and secular people who don't experience them in their daily life. And they want to show that, no, you can actually experience them in your daily life. That's where the apologetics comes in. Um, and so Shell, and by the way, Shell has his works put on the index in 1898. Um, for a lot of different reasons, his his philosophy draws on that of of George Hegel. The other stream of this comes from uh, France, and in particular, two two thinkers. One um, guy named Leon Ole Laprune, who was a philosopher. Who again, his philosophy stresses personal experience, <clears throat> like we come to know God primarily through experience, rather than through uh, again. Um, rational, systematic theology, I guess. He, like Hermann Schell, is, is really opposed to scholasticism. Uh, and this is one of the things, um, uh, O'Prune, when I talk about experience, he's influenced by it. We, something we talked about, I talked about in an earlier episode, which was the uh, philosophy of ontologism. Again, this is the idea that everyone has this sort of, um, can have this direct experience of, of God himself that you need to, that's how you know him. Again, but emphasis is all on experience rather than, you know, other things. And, um, and so he's a follower of this and he's important mainly because he has a one really famous student a guy named Maurice Blondel. Maurice Blondel is one of the most important, uh, Catholic philosophers of, of the modern era. I mentioned him a lot already in the episode on modernism, just to refresh here. Again, he takes up these ideas. He is uh, he, his is a philosophy of imminence as well, and his idea basically is that knowledge and um, revelation are again tied to subjective experience. Uh, again, and part of what these again what these what these people are criticizing scholasticism for. There's something to that. Their idea is well, you know, you can't. It can't be totally just about abstract thought. You can't separate thought from life, quote unquote, as it were. You can't separate, you know, abstract thought too much from life. Um, and what Blondel basically comes up with, he actually writes a book called L'Action, Action, right? Which again, you go back to Lamanet, that was a big word, was action, right? Other words, you find God in the world through action more than contemplation. Uh, he is also, like he... Um, Blondell comes up with the word extrinsicism to describe not just scholasticism, but also positivism. Uh, both of these things uh, are false, because, or not false, they, they mislead because they make 
abstract thought seems so separated from our experiences. Uh, and so he sort of condemns them both together. And in fact, his philosophy has a lot in common, a lot in common, with an American philosophical movement that emerges in the 1870s called pragmatism. And if you know what pragmatism is, it's basically a sort of uh, version of empiricism where knowledge is derived through the senses, through experience, sensory experience, but oriented toward action. In other words, real knowledge results in action in the world. Again, it's sort of an anti-contemplative, anti-speculative. That's the probably best way to put it. Uh, speculative thought is useless. It's too abstract, all that stuff. Uh, and Blondell really, he has this idea. His apologetics is, um, what he wants to, what he's trying to pitch to a secular society is that if we look at our daily lives and examine them, we'll find that uh, we have within our imminent whatever, subjective experience, we experience this lack. And what this lack is, is a lack of transcendence. So in other words, our imminent experience leads us, I think, by necessity to seek transcendence. In other words, to seek God. Um, I have to say, I don't think much of Blondell's philosophy. Uh, he's a big, he's a he's revered today, partly because pretty much all of the theological movements that replace scholasticism at the Second Vatican Council, trace, trace, most of them do anyway, trace a lot of their origins back to him. So he's a big name. I, I don't, I don't get it myself. I don't, I don't see why. I don't get it is the point. But he has, Blondell knows every single major figure, is friends with every single major figure in the modernist movement, with Loisie, uh, with um, uh, another philosopher named uh, Lucien Labertonier, um, uh, and his work influences them. He never goes that far. I made this clear in my episode on uh, on um, on modernism. He's not a modernist. Um, his work is close to it and feeds into it, but he would did not accept the conclusions they drew from some of the 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 um, elements in his philosophy, particularly the, the whole idea of imminence. Because what Blondell says is imminence has to issue in transcendence. Where modernists go is basically that they're, they're, is it, their, their philosophies are about pure imminence. That is to say, we can only know God through experience, and we have no access to any sort of direct truth, basically. And that's not what Blondell thinks. Blondell is exempted from the condemnations of modernism by Pius X himself. Uh, he's a pious guy. goes to Mass every day. He's not a modernist. He's not a heretic or anything. But his work does, I think, have an influence. Then finally, last last thing I'll mention here. Again, this is kind of tenuous. It's not really like there's a direct link. It's pretty clear that liberalism, with it trying to you know, to engage in the modern world, does open up you know a sort of space for modernism to enter. But it's it doesn't feed directly into it. I'll mention uh, one last element uh, of Catholic liberalism, which is are the are the lay social movements that are influenced by it at the end of the 19th century. You have these lay movements. Again, after 1870, there's all this hostility to Catholicism in Italy and France and elsewhere. And so you have some lay movements that are founded to try to overcome this. The oldest one of these is uh, one that still exists today in a with a different name, but uh, um, um, it was founded as the uh, Italian Catholic Youth Society in 1867 in Bologna, whose goal basically was to sort of give, you know, fellowship, you know, lay Catholics to embrace their faith, but also they formed sort of study groups to study the faith more, to know their faith better. Uh, and it attracted a lot of people. Um, they began organizing uh, youth congresses over uh, from all of Italy, 
uh, from uh, 1872. They became really big uh, in 18, uh, by, uh, by the end of the 19th century. However, by the early, early 20th century, there began to be um, concerns among the hierarchy and Pius X especially because uh, some of these members of this, um, this con- it's called the Opera Dei Congressi, this Congress of Catholic Youth. And um, uh, Pius X dissolves the Congress in, in 1904 because some of them are dabbling in with uh, political alliances with socialists. Uh, and so, uh, but the next year, it's refounded as Azione Cattolica. And that name sounds, that's, that's the Italian name. It's Catholic Action, which if you recall, again, is, that's the phrase that was founded by La Manet, the original Catholic liberal, to describe how Catholics should go into the world and, you know, reclaim it for Christ, basically. Now, what's going to happen, though, in Catholic Action as a lay movement is going to change a lot after Pius X because one of his big concerns actually is is really the fact that these lay people are independent of the hierarchy and he doesn't like that at all. He's it's a kind of a clericalist attitude is my point. And it gets refounded uh it still exists by the way to this day in Italy. Uh, and later on in fact Catholic action as a as a general umbrella term for all these lay movements will have a big renaissance under Pius XI, but it'll be a very different thing because it'll no longer be lay run. It'll be totally under the control of the hierarchy. And the other, the final, the last uh, one of these groups I'll mention is called Lucien, which is a group founded in France in 1894 by a uh, man named Marc Saunier. And Saunier was a very pious, devout guy, founds Lucien, similar purposes as, uh, as Azione Cattolica was originally, uh, forms a circle of study groups for young Catholics across France, who, by the way, come from every background, all classes, uh, um, you know, working class, rural, middle class, which is very rare at the time. And he forms these groups, which become wildly popular because they do bring people together, because they do, um, um, they take as their model people like Frederick Ozenam and Henri de Lacordaire, liberals who followed in the wake of uh, Catholic liberals who followed in the wake of um, of La Manet, and um, so yeah, they they found you know, um, what are called institut populaire, inst- popular institutes make it possible possible for for example uh, workers to continue their education. Again, it's very rare back then you had this sort of thing, and they're very I mean they they're encouraged by Pius X when they go make pilgrimages to Rome. When they passed the law of separation in 1905, the uh, uh, in France, they they um, the um, the um, uh, Lucien um, engage in protests uh, against this. In fact, they're actually they uh, get beat up by some of these anti-clerical uh, thugs. So they're very much. Um, it's actually a good. And again, it's this really it's actually a great thing in a lot of ways. However, two things begin to sort of get the hierarchy's attention. One, they try to get into politics. They try to found a party. It doesn't work that well. Um, and um, the other thing is they begin to, in 1907, um, allow uh, non-Catholics into their groups who are attracted by their moral ideals. And this begins to make um, the Vatican nervous. And so in 1910, Pius X issues a letter calling for them to disband. Uh, because in his mind, they're placing too much emphasis on the human origins of authority as opposed to divine. And in particular, he basically is worried about them get, uh, being emphasizing tolerance so much that it gives the impression that uh, the Catholic Church isn't necessary for salvation. In other words, all that stuff where they were having too close of ties with non-Catholics uh, made the Church nervous. 
And so he asked them to disband it, which they did immediately. Uh, again, Song Ye was a, a lifelong Catholic, very loyal, served the church well um, after World War One. made uh, in terms of, uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, the point is, that's basically the last movement, I think you could say, that has a direct link to Catholic liberalism. And is done in by all these it's new forces that are coming to the fore at the end of the 19th century. The changes, you know, with the law of separation in France, uh, but particularly, of course, with the modernist crisis itself. The modernist crisis and the reaction to it, um, the reaction to it is really severe. And, uh, and so after 1907, 1910, you can really no longer in Catholic seminaries or Catholic universities even discuss uh, ideas that could be considered modernism, which means uh, basically any sort of defective discussion of Catholic liberalism is strangled. Uh, that and, of course, the two world wars are the other things that sort of submerge and just uh, eclipse uh, the meaning of Catholic liberalism as a, a, a independent movement. It's basically gone um, because it's no longer as distinct uh, anymore. However, Catholic liberal ideas still influence the church. They don't; they never go away. Catholic li uh, liberalism as a theological movement is very much still with us. And so, as we end the history of uh, with the history of its uh, actual as a movement within the church, religious movement. Uh, we'll have one last episode, and we're going to talk about its legacy and its continuing influence, in which I'll try to make the argument, I'm going to try, I think I can make an argument, that Catholic liberalism, because one of the burdens of this whole series is that I think it's, it's a different thing than modernism. I think I'm going to argue that it's, even today, still more influential on the church than modernism itself. So that'll be the last episode. Next time, look for an episode on where we assess the legacy of Catholic liberalism. I hope you guys have enjoyed the series so far. One last one to go. Uh, again, if you like the like the podcast, please subscribe. Go to YouTube and subscribe there. Go to the website, like the Facebook page. Tell one friend. Say email a friend. This is great stuff. You got to do it. Let them know. Spread the word so we can grow our audience here. Uh, but mostly, I'll thank you guys for listening. Uh, God be with you. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Take care, y'all.